Chapter Eleven of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Chapter Eleven. No way out. The fairy palaces burst into illumination before pale morning showed the monstrous serpents of smoke trailing themselves over Coketown. A clattering of clogs upon the pavement, a rapid ringing of bells, and all the melancholy mad elephants, polished and oiled up for the day's monotony, were at their heavy exercise again. Stephen bent over his loom, quiet, watchful, and steady. A special contrast, as every man was in the forest of looms where Stephen worked, to the crashing, smashing, tearing piece of mechanism at which he laboured. Never fear, good people of an anxious turn of mind, that art will consign nature to oblivion. Set anywhere, side by side, the work of God and the work of man, and the former, even though it be a troop of hands of very small account, will gain in dignity from the comparison. So many hundred hands in this mill, so many hundred horse steam-power, it is known to the force of a single pound weight what the engine will do. But not all the calculators of the national debts can tell me the capacity for good or evil, for love or hatred, for patriotism or discontent, for the decomposition of virtue into vice, or the reverse, at any single moment in the soul of one of these its quiet servants, with the composed faces and the regulated actions. There is no mystery in it. There is an unfathomable mystery in the meanest of them forever. Supposing we were to reverse our arithmetic for material objects, and to govern these awful unknown quantities by other means. The day grew strong, and showed itself outside, even against the flaming lights within. The lights were turned out, and the work went on. The rain fell, and the smoke serpents, submissive to the curse of all that tribe, trailed themselves upon the earth. In the waste-yard outside, the steam from the escape-pipe, the litter of barrels and old iron, the shining heaps of coals, the ashes everywhere, were shrouded in a veil of mist and rain. The work went on until the noon-bell rang, more clattering upon the pavements, the looms and wheels and hands all out of gear for an hour. Stephen came out of the hot mill into the damp wind and cold wet streets, haggard and worn. He turned from his own class and his own quarter, taking nothing but a little bread as he walked along towards the hill on which his principal employer lived, in a red house with black outside shutters, green inside blinds, a black street door, up two white steps, Bounderby, in letters very like himself, upon a brazen plate, and a round brazen door-handle underneath it, like a brazen full stop. Mr. Bounderby was at his lunch, so Stephen had expected. Would his servant say that one of the hands begged leave to speak to him? Message in return requiring name of such hand. Stephen Blackpool. There was nothing troublesome against Stephen Blackpool. Yes, he might come in. 
Stephen Blackpool in the parlour, Mr. Bounderby, whom he just knew by sight, at lunch on chop and sherry, Mrs. Sparsit netting at the fireside in a side-saddle attitude, with one foot in a cotton stirrup. It was a part at once of Mrs. Sparsit's dignity and service not to lunch. She supervised the meal officially, but implied that in her own stately person she considered lunch a weakness. "'Now, Stephen,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'what's the matter with you?' Stephen made a bow. Not a servile one. These hands will never do that. Lord bless you, sir, you'll never catch them at that, if they had been with you twenty years.' and, as a complimentary toilet for Mrs. Sparsit, tucked his neckerchief ends into his waistcoat. "'Now you know,' said Mr. Bounderby, taking some sherry, "'we have never had any difficulty with you, and you've never been one of the unreasonable ones. You don't expect to be set up in a coach and six, and to be fed on turtle soup and venison with a gold spoon, as many of them do.' Mr. Bounderby always represented this to be the sole, immediate, and direct object of any hand who was not entirely satisfied. "'And therefore I know already that you have not come here to make a complaint. Now, you know, I am certain of that beforehand.' "'No, sir. Sure I not come for night at kind.' Mr. Bounderby seemed agreeably surprised, notwithstanding his previous strong conviction. "'Very well,' he returned. You're a steady hand, and I was not mistaken. Now, let me hear what it's all about. As it's not that, let me hear what it is. What have you got to say? Out we it, lad. Stephen happened to glance towards Mrs. Sparsit. I can go, Mr. Bounderby, if you wish it, said that self-sacrificing lady, making a feint of taking her foot out of the stirrup. Mr. Bounderby stayed her by holding a mouthful of chop in suspension before swallowing it, and putting out his left hand. Then, withdrawing his hand and swallowing his mouthful of chop, he said to Stephen, "'Now, you know, this good lady is a born lady, a high lady. You're not to suppose, because she keeps my house for me, that she hasn't been very high up in the tree. Aye, up at the top of the tree.' Now, if you've got anything to say that can't be said before a born lady, this lady will leave the room. If what you've got to say can be said before a born lady, this lady will stay where she is. Sir, I hope I never had no say not fitting for a born lady here since I were a born Miss N. Was the reply, accompanied with a slight flush. Very well, said Mr. Bounderby, pushing away his plate and leaning back. Far away. I a come, Stephen began, raising his eyes from the floor after a moment's consideration, to ask you your advice, I need to overmuch. I were married on Easter Monday, nineteen years in, long and dree. She were a young lass, pretty now, with good account of her sen. Well, she went bad soon. Nor along of me, gun knows I were nor an unkind husband to her. Now I've heard all this before, said Mr. Bounderby. She took to drinking. "'left off working, sold the furniture, pawned the clothes, and played old gooseberry. "'I were patient with you.' "'More through you, I think,' said Mr. Bounderby, in confidence to his wine-glass. "'I were very patient with you. I tried weaner from it hour and hour again. "'I tried this, and I tried that, and I tried t'other. "'I'd gone home many time, and found all vanished as I had it world. 
and now he has a sense left to bless a sen line up burground. I had done not once, not twice, twenty time. Every line in his face deepened as he said it, and put in its affecting evidence of the suffering he had undergone. From bad to worse, from worse to worse, she left me. She disgraced us in every ways, bitter and bad. She come back, she come back, she come back. What could I do tinder her? I a walked streets nights longer ever I'd go home. I gone to brig, minded to fling me cell over, and I no more on't. I abode that much that I were owed when I were young. Mrs. Sparsit, easily ambling along with her netting needles, raised the Coriolanian eyebrows and shook her head, as much as to say, the great no trouble as well as the small. Please to turn your humble eye in my direction. I a paid her keep away from me. These five years I paid her. I a gotten decent fouls about me again. I had lived hard and sad, but nor ashamed and fearful a minutes of me life. Last night I went home. There she lay upon thy stone. There she is. In the strength of his misfortune and the energy of his distress. He fired for the moment like a proud man. In another moment he stood as he had stood all the time, his usual stoop upon him, his pondering face addressed to Mr. Bounderby with a curious expression on it, half shrewd, half perplexed, as if his mind were set upon unravelling something very difficult, his hat held tight in his left hand, which rested on his hip, his right arm, with a rugged propriety and force of action, very earnestly emphasizing what he said. Not least so when it always paused, a little bent, but not withdrawn, as he paused. "'I was acquainted with all this, you know,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Except the last clause, long ago. It's a bad job, that's what it is. You had better been satisfied as you were, and not have got married.' However, it's too late to say that. Was it an unequal marriage, sir, in point of years? asked Mrs. Sparsit. You hear what this lady asks? Was it an unequal marriage in point of years, this unlucky job of yours? asked Mr. Bounderby. Nor e'en so. I were one and twenty, Miss N, and she were twenty now, but. Indeed, sir, said Mrs. Sparsit to her chef with great placidity. I inferred from its being so miserable a marriage that it was probably an unequal one in point of years. Mr. Bounderby looked very hard at the good lady in a sidelong way that had an odd sheepishness about it. He fortified himself with a little more sherry. Well, why don't you go on? He then asked, turning rather irritably on Stephen Blackpool. I come to ask you, sir, oh, I am to be rid of this woman. Stephen infused a yet deeper gravity into the mixed expression of his attentive face. Mrs. Sparsit uttered a gentle ejaculation, as having received a moral shock. "'What do you mean?' said Bounderby, getting up to lean his back against the chimney-piece. "'What are you talking about? You took her for better for worse.' "'I mun be rid of her. I can't burn her more. I have lived under it so long for that. I hadn't had pity and comforting words at best last living a dead. Happily, but for her, I should have gone battering mad. He wishes to be free, to marry the female of whom he speaks, I fear, sir, observed Mrs. Sparsit in an undertone, and much dejected by the immorality of the people. 
I do. Lady says what's right, I do. I were coming to it, and I, I read it papers, that great folk, fur four to em, I wish em no hurt, are not bonded together for better for worse, so fast that they can't be set free from the misfortunate marriages, and marry o'er again. When they do not agree for that the tempers is ill-sorted, they has rooms of one kind or another in their houses, above a bit, that they can live us unders. We folk I only one room we can't. When that won't do, they are gout and all the cash, and they can say this for you and that for me, and they can go the separate ways. We can't. Spite of all that, they can be set free for smaller wrongs than mine, so I'm unbe rid of this woman, and I want to know how. No, how? returned Mr. Bounderby. If I do any hurt, sir, there's a law to punish me. Of course there is. If I flee from her, there's a law to punish me. Of course there is. If I marry t'other dear lass, there's a law to punish me. Of course there is. If I were to live with her and not marry her, saying such things could be, which it never could, or would, a nurse a good, there's a law to punish me and every innocent child belonging to me. Of course there is. Now a God's name, said Stephen Blackpool, show me the law to help me. <laughs> there's a sanctity in this relation of life, said Mr. Bounderby. And it must be kept up. No, no, don't say that. Don't keep up that way, not that way. Tis kept down that way. I'm a weaver. I were in a factory when I were a child, but I ain't got ink to see we, and I ain't to hear we. I read it papers, every sizes, every sessions, and you can read too. I know it with dismay, out supposed impossibility again unchained from one another at any price, on any terms, brings blood upon this land, and brings many common married folk to battle, murder, and sudden death. Let us have this right understood. Mine is a grievous case, and I want, if you will be so good, to know the law that helps me. Now, I tell you what said Mr. Bounderby, putting his hands in his pockets. "'There is such a law.' Stephen, subsiding into his quiet manner, and never wandering in his attention, gave a nod. "'But it's not for you at all. It costs money. It costs a mint of money.' "'How much might that be?' Stephen calmly asked. "'Why, you'd have to go to Doctor's Commons with a suit, and you'd have to go to a court of common law with a suit.' "'And you'd have to go to the House of Lords with your suit. "'And you'd have to get an Act of Parliament to enable you to marry again. "'And it would cost you, if it was a case of very plain sailing, "'I suppose from a thousand to fifteen hundred pound,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Perhaps twice the money.' "'There's no other law?' "'Certainly not.' "'Why then, sir?' said Stephen, turning white and motioning with that right hand of his, as if he gave everything to the four winds. "'Tis a muddle. Tis just a muddle altogether, and the sooner I'm dead the better.' Mrs. Sparsett again dejected by the impiety of the people. "'Oh, don't you talk nonsense, my good fellow,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'About things you don't understand.' And don't you call the institutions of your country a muddle, or you'll get yourself into a real muddle one of these fine mornings. The institutions of your country are not your piecework, and the only thing you've got to do is to mind your piecework. You didn't take your wife for fast and for loose, but for better for worse. If she's turned out worse, why, 
"'All we've got to say is, she might have turned out better.' "'Tis a muddle,' said Stephen, shaking his head as he moved to the door. "'Tis a muddle.' "'Now I'll tell you what,' Mr. Bounderby resumed, as a valedictory address, "'with what I shall call your unhallowed opinions, you've been quite shocking this lady, who, as I've already told you, is a born lady, and who, as I've not already told you, has had her own marriage misfortunes, to the tune of tens of thousands of pounds, tens of thousands of pounds.' He repeated it with great relish. "'Now, you've always been a steady hand near to four, but my opinion is, and so I tell you plainly, that you are turning into the wrong road. You've been listening to some mischievous stranger or other. They're always about, and the best thing you can do is to come out of that. Now, you know, I can see as far into a grindstone as any other man.' farther than the good many, perhaps, cause I had my nose well kept to it when I was young. I see traces of the turtle soup and venison and gold spoon in this. Yes, I do, cried Mr. Bounderby, shaking his head with obstinate cunning. By the Lord Harry, I do. With a very different shake of the head and deep sigh, Stephen said, Thank you, sir. I wish you good day. So he left Mr. Bounderby swelling at his own portrait on the wall, as if he were going to explode himself into it, and Mrs. Sparsit still ambling on with her foot in her stirrup, looking quite cast down by the popular vices. End of chapter 11